Welcome to That Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show, Stephanie Wicker-Campbell. Stephanie Wicker-Campbell is one of the coolest people in the world, uh, and she is also a family counsellor and child behaviour advocate. Uh, so, Steph, welcome. And can you please explain to us what a child behaviour advocate actually is? Sure. So first off, thank you so much, Emma, for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you today um, about such really good topics. Um, so a children's behavior advocate, that's kind of a term that I probably made up. Um, but basically, that is, it's an opportunity for me to help families, to help parents, help educators and foster parents, anyone who has committed their life to having a positive impact on kids. One of the things that gets in the way right? One of the biggest things that interrupts our ability to support children through challenges is the way that we translate their behavior. So as a behavioral advocate, it's my role to help those people who are so committed but are struggling um, to better understand their kids and the decisions that their kids are making. So by understanding what is going on behind your child's behavior, then we actually become much more in tune or we're, we're able to remain connected with them. We're able to empower them um, and we're able to basically to show up in the way that we want to. But so often we feel like we're just not able to because we're busy taking behavior personally, right? Our child yells at us and we take it very personal. Everything becomes a lot harder as soon as we define it as a stressful event. So as a behavior advocate, it's my role to help you first off to understand your child's behavior better, but then to also understand your own responses to their behavior better. And you become much more proactive. So it's, it's really a beautiful holistic approach to, you know, to parenting and family support. Ah, okay. So it sounds like everybody needs you in their corner. <laughs> every parent or every step-parent, every foster parent, every, every teacher, every person who deals with children a lot. So, um, but how did you get to this point? So like, obviously at what point does someone decide they're going to do this thing? So, um, how did, what was your journey into this kind of work? Yes. Um, so it wasn't really, um, I don't think it was an intentional journey. It wasn't something that I planned. Um, I started working as a preschool teacher in my early 20s. And then from there, um, after having um, several kids in our class who had um, significant needs, and I found that I didn't know how to support children with high needs in the class, uh, in the classroom setting. Um, and there weren't, at the time, we didn't have things like emotional intelligence in the curriculum. We didn't have things like growth mindset um, and those types of resources that educators today have an abundance of. It's so exciting. Um, but, I, but then at that stage, we didn't have access to that kind of information. And I found myself really desiring to learn more. And I remember this one time we had an outbreak of biting <laughs> happening um, in the classroom and, and, you know, and parents were removing their kids from the class and I didn't know what to do. And, and our, um, you know, our clinical director, she was like, uh, just put a red chair in the room and have time out and stick kids in the corner if they're biting. And, and I remember just feeling like this can't be it. This can't be the answer to, to isolate these kids. So I didn't know what the answer was. I just knew that that wasn't what I wanted. That wasn't the path that I wanted to take as an educator. So that led me to studying more and learning more about children's development. And I took an interest in behavioral analysis. And I started working in children's therapies. For about six years, I was working um, in early intervention with children, um, specifically children with developmental deficits, uh, learning delays, things like that. Um, and that really provided me with some of the information that I had been missing before. I'd always been passionate about kids, but I knew that there was a gap in my ability to support them as an early childhood educator. So just a desire to do more and to be more as a teacher led me down that path. And eventually it turned into you know, private consultancy. Right. Okay. But, um, you weren't always a preschool teacher, were you? What did you No, no, no. And <laughs> that's a bit of a story of itself. Um, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a story all by itself. So I did not, um, you know, I didn't initially go to university 
planning to study early childhood education. As a matter of fact, I studied emergency medicine and health sciences, and I was working as a paramedic in Orlando, Florida, um, when everything in my life kind of turned upside down um, in a matter of one call. And uh, it's not really something that I talk about very much because of the weight, I guess, because it's very heavy. Um, but basically what happened was we had a respond one day. We, um, we had a 911 call that we were responding to. We didn't know a lot of information, but we just knew that it was a young child and it was at a church. And when we got there, as soon as we arrived, um, what usually happens when you arrive on the scene is someone's waiting for you. Someone is, is available to give you information and to take you to your patient, if not the patient being ready for you. Um, but in this case, no one was really looking at us. No one was um, really responding to us, um, which automatically let my partner and I know something was off. Something was wrong. Something was different about this call. And so we actually had to walk around for maybe a minute or two before we found someone who could give us answers about the 911 call. And they took us into the church. We went downstairs into the basement where there was a big kitchen and there were tables and food. And clearly there was an after, you know, a Sunday afternoon event going on and everyone was barbecuing and eating delicious food. But on the floor in the middle of the kitchen was this little bundle all by itself. No one was, no one was holding her. No one was looking at her. She was all by herself on the floor. And my partner just ran over and scooped her up before I could even realize what was happening. I couldn't even register what was happening because there was, it was so noisy and people were laughing and carrying on. And next thing you know, my partner was just like a blur. And he went and he scooped up this little girl and he took her outside and I'm following him. And it turned out that she was a 14-month-old, beautiful girl, but she was unrecognizable because of the impact that had happened, the, the trauma that had happened to her face. And um, she'd clearly been heavily abused, heavily abused. Um, by the time that we got her to the OR, she was non-responsive and they were not able to... Um, yeah, they, they weren't able to resuscitate her. So that was a very heavy day. And when we were in the OR waiting for the news um, from the surgeon, um, a 14-year-old girl who was very small for her age um, came in and joined us. And she was the mom. And it was that moment that my life changed forever. When I saw this kid raising a kid, and, uh, and just the fear that she must have been feeling in that moment. Um, eventually, we found out the whole story. It, it took a little bit of time to put all the pieces together because it wasn't, the information wasn't readily available for us. So it turned out that this little girl was, um, you know, she had been caught up in domestic abuse and had paid the ultimate price. Um, but her parents were no older than 14 years old. And the people that were at the church, the reason they weren't holding her was out of fear. They were afraid that they would be blamed um, for the abuse that had happened to her. So rather than, rather than advocating for this child, rather than just making her feel loved and safe in her final hours, she was alone on a cold, dirty kitchen floor. And I think that there's just some things in our life where we know we've changed. There's no going back to the person that I was before her. And, um, and it was that experience that led me into an interest. Um, I, I just wanted to spend more time with kids. I, I, I didn't know where it was going to lead. I didn't know how it was going to impact my life. I just knew that I wanted to do more. I wanted to be more. And I wanted to be part of something that was bigger than myself. And it would be years before I realized, okay, I'm meant to be a family counselor. I am meant to support families. I am meant to be a foster mom. I get emotional when I talk about this because it's just the journey was a hard one, but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to her all the time and just the path that it ended up leading me on. Um, but but the truth is, is it wasn't it wasn't an easy path. It was actually a lot darker before it before I reached the other side of it. So. I am still so confused as to why there were people still getting on with their day when there's a baby on the ground. Like, how did the baby get there? What, like, who called 911? I don't understand any of this. <laughs> yeah. And, and that can kind of give you some insight into why it took me so long 
to process that. Because when we don't have answers to the painful things in our life or the painful things that we see other people do, when we don't have those answers, why did it happen? How did it happen? What can we change in the system so it doesn't happen again? When we don't have that, processing stuff is a lot harder when we don't have answers. And that's actually one of the biggest reasons why that's what I do. I try to provide parents and educators and foster carers with answers so they can better understand the situation that their kids are in, how kids process their emotions, how children make decisions, and how they process emotions, how they make decisions. Because with knowledge comes support, comes change. But without those answers, it's so difficult. And, and your question of why? Who called? You know, how does this happen? These are, these are questions that I've been struggling with for 15 years. And it's one of the reasons that I actually, um, I ended up spiraling into a bit of depression. And it wasn't until maybe 10 or 11 years later that I was finally diagnosed uh, with clinical depression. So I was struggling with a invisible, you know, condition that I wasn't aware of. And I didn't know how to express it. I didn't know how to process it. Um, one of the many things that was required of me during this time as a medic was to go to counseling. That's one of the first things that they do. It's mandatory. It's in-house therapy um, that they provide. And that's one of the first things they do when they know that um, they have someone who has gone through a response call that may have an impact on their ability to do their job. Yeah. And so that was one of the things that I had to do. It was required that I went to counseling and therapy. And now as someone who absolutely advocates for counseling and therapy, I'm a big fan, right? But back then, um, I, I, along with many, many people, uh, had the misconception that counseling meant failure, that counseling meant weakness, that counseling meant that something was wrong with me, you know, like I was missing something. Um, and that meant that being truly vulnerable with someone else, it didn't happen. It wasn't possible. I was too busy feeling ashamed of myself. And when we feel shame, being vulnerable, learning, uh, being receptive to feedback, all of those things are prevented because we're so busy just encompassing ourselves in this blanket of shame. And that was me for years. And that eventually is one of the many, many components that led to my divorce, um, which by itself was incredibly hard. Because when you have someone who is still processing an event that they don't know they're processing, right? I had no self-awareness whatsoever. And I wasn't in tune to my own needs. If anything, I was ignoring my needs, suppressing my needs, belittling my needs, which is what a lot of us tend to do when we don't know any better. And that put me in a place where when I went through divorce, I hit rock bottom. And I don't use that term lightly. So... A lot of things, <laughs> it, it just kind of all added up. It was like everything in my life just kind of like cascaded into this darkness. And it was so difficult to find the light. Um, and it took me years to resurface. Eventually I did. Um, but that wasn't before I really, um, I toyed with a lot of very dangerous ideas. Um, Self-harm, um, you know, suicide attempts, uh, alcohol dependency, I any kind of avoidance, any kind of avoidance to get out of that shame, you know. So when we don't understand ourselves, I think that's what we do is we try to avoid it rather than face it. Mm. And uh, yeah, and that that was my journey for a long time. So where did the shame come from? Why did you feel shame over this incident? Mm. I think that please remember that shame is not logical. Shame is not reasonable, right? So, so shame is something that a lot of us are prone to carry. And there's a big difference between feeling guilt and feeling shame. You know, feeling guilt. I, I love um, Brene Brown covers a lot of this in depth, and I absolutely love all of her books. And one of the things that she said that really struck a chord with me was that was the difference between the two. And with guilt, guilt can be logical. Guilt is I've made a mistake. 
I need to fix it. Mm. You know, I feel bad about that mistake. Therefore, it can be motivation to learn and to grow and yeah. to do something better. Yeah. Guilt is healthy. Um, as long as we do that, as long as we use it to learn and grow, guilt can be a motivator. Shame, on the other hand, shame has no reason. It's it completely lacks any. You know, there's no uh, there's no logic behind it. There's there's no evidence behind it. Like like it is absolutely unreasonable. It is only harmful. And shame is that belief of I am not worthy. I am a bad person. That's why I make mistakes. That's why all of these things are happening in my life because I deserve them. Um, you know, because I'm not worthy of anything better. So that shame. I probably already carried it, but this event just highlighted it even further. And I grew up with, um, with an undiagnosed anxiety disorder. I didn't know things, like I said at the very beginning, I, I didn't know things like emotional intelligence. I didn't know things like self-awareness, resilient thinking, things that we kind of take advantage of because these are just household terms today which is incredible. Maybe not for every home, but we're getting there. We're seeing so much progress. But for me, they weren't. I didn't grow up in that generation. And so I had learned how to suppress things. I had learned how to belittle my own needs, right? I was really good at that. So when you take, when you take someone who has an anxiety disorder and someone who has ignored their needs their whole life, and then you put them in a traumatic event, that is a recipe for shame. That, that is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for a lot of pain. And it was. Okay. So, okay. So a lot of bad things and then ultimately good things happened after this, but let's go back to the event for a little while because, okay. So you take this baby girl to the hospital, the mum shows up, where's the dad? And, and what happens? Was there a trial? Was this a manslaughter case? Was this a murder trial? Like, did you have to go and be a witness at that trial? What happened procedurally after this incident, like in terms of your involvement? Yeah. So these are all really good questions. And I was thankfully saved from a lot of that. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure how I would have done. Um, but because I was in therapy, which was mandatory, I was assigned to therapy. So because of that, I wasn't seen as someone who would be good, um, in court. <laughs> um, so my, my partner actually took the brunt of a lot of that along with my captain. So they stepped in um, and they kind of carried the torch in that area. Simply, I was new as well to all of this. Um, so I was, I was new to working with Rural Metro, which is the company that I'd worked with. Um, and they understood that and they could see the impact that that was having on me. I was physically ill for weeks. Um, which I didn't realize was actually very common with trauma. So when we experience those high doses of stress, it impacts us emotionally, physiologically, and of course, biologically. So because I didn't understand all of that, I didn't know what was happening in my body. Um, so I was very, very ill for a while. Um, so again, that also kind of probably kind of got me out of the center of, um, you know, the center of attention during that time. And my partner ended up taking the brunt of most of that, but yes, it did go to court. Um, yes, the, um, he was, I'm sorry. Uh, the father was, like I said, he was 14 years old. Um, uh, I don't remember exactly what ended up happening to him. A lot of it's a blur for me, um, at this point still, but, um, yeah. It was just a very difficult time for everybody, I think. And we never met the dad. We only met the mom. And even then, when I met her, I was not, I was not in a place to support her. I was not in a place to ask questions. I was not reasonable. So my only time meeting her, I was full of judgment and anger and pain. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, that that wasn't what she needed then, but that was what she got from me. And I regret that very much. Um, but anyway, but to answer your question, as far as the logistics go, um, my partner took the brunt of it along with my captain. They were very supportive of me and they understood that I was 20, 21. I was a baby and I was struggling to process everything and putting me um, in the spotlight in a courtroom probably wouldn't have been the best idea. So I was um, relinquished of that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So this, this happens, you go to counseling, counseling doesn't really work out for you. And then your husband is there and is he trying to help you as well? Like, can he see that you're drowning or does, is he sort of like, pull up your socks? Like, it's not that bad. Get on with things. Like what was his attitude and, and how did that kind of contribute to the ultimate demise of the relationship? Yeah. And you know, that is such a good question because I think that what we often think is that when we experience trauma, that people will help us and that we'll be able to ask for help. But what I have found, and this is not just true of myself, this is true of many, many people in pain and suffering around the world. They do not know that it is trauma that they are experiencing. I thought because I was assigned to a counselor, because I was refrained from the courtroom, because I was removed from everything, I thought that I was to blame, right? Because when we are going through traumatic events, our brain becomes very egocentric. It really focuses on this must be my fault. I must have dropped the ball. I must have done something wrong, right? That's that's how our brain protects itself. It's actually very harmful, but our brain considers it a defense mechanism. So that was kicking in. And I did not have the level of self-awareness to differentiate between what was true and what wasn't. Yeah. So I didn't ask my husband for help. I didn't ask anyone for help. I, let's see, what did I do? I started eating a lot. I started sleeping a lot. Um, I left my job and started working as an early childhood educator. Um, you know, I gave that my all. So, so my family and my husband didn't understand this decision. I had studied for four years just to get the career that I had. And I was finally there after all this work and all this time and all these tests and everything that it takes to work on an ambulance. And I had given up my career to go work in a daycare. I don't think people understood what was happening. I didn't understand what was happening. And rather than seeing this as connected events, I think that people saw it as I was giving up on my career. I was really taking a turn for the worst. I wasn't taking care of myself. And I think that that's where the disconnect started to happen with my husband and I. I remember my ex-husband, I remember him saying things like, you know, you're so lazy now and um, can't get you to go out and have fun, you know, and see our friends. So there was no empathy. There was no understanding, but I don't blame him for that because I realized looking back that we're only able to receive help when we know that we need it. So even if he had tried to help, which he might have, I would have seen it as judgment. I would have seen it as belittling. You know what I mean? I I was so separated and I I found myself getting into that very disassociative state Mm -hmm. where everything felt like a dream. Like I was living out somebody else's life. So that means that I was making a lot of poor decisions. I was becoming extremely clumsy, forgetful, uh, all of those things that tend to really add up in your interpersonal relationships. I was burning bridges, making a lot of mistakes. Um, and in the meantime, my husband um, was becoming further and further and further um, away from me, just emotionally and and physically, of course, as well. And all of those things that really impact your relationship. And it didn't help that he was deployed um, overseas for a lot of this time. Okay. So you're alone for a lot of this. And so you've got this job and were you finding any joy in the new career that you pursued? Like what was that? Because obviously you're really intelligent. So like applying that incredible intelligence to this new position, um, did that help? Like, did you find any solace in the new job? I think that that was the only solace I was finding was the joy of seeing the same beautiful faces every day that would light up, you know, when I, when I got to work, you know, seeing the kids there and, and telling the stories and reading the books and all of those little things. Um, and I think that's important because there are going to be moments in our life and sometimes they're longer than we want them to be, but there are going to be moments where nothing seems to be working out. You know, nothing seems to be going right. And it's those moments that if we can tune into the little things, if we can find appreciation in the tiny things that sometimes we forget about. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm grateful for is uh, I still see 
all the kids. You know, I have such a close relationship with all of them. To this day, I can still picture them so perfectly because they were, they were that continuity. They were that consistency that I needed. So that room of 18 kids and knowing that they relied on me, you know, for comfort, for, for their daily lessons, for guidance, for all of these things and, and helping them with the painting. And that was definitely what, what helps me. It's, it's what got me through probably the first couple of years. It wasn't until, um, my husband finally left me. It wasn't until he was like, I'm with someone else. I'm in love with someone else. Um, I'm leaving you for her. That was, I, I stopped working for probably 18 months and those were the darkest days. Those 18 months were the darkest days. But, but before then, when I was just processing everything still and, and just trying to heal as best I could from something that I didn't even realize was trauma, it was definitely those faces that, that gave me kind of, this is why I wake up every morning and this is why I continue. Um, but then I think the next big blow was divorce. Ah, okay. So, okay. So you kind of like, you, like you resigned from your position when this all happened and you kind of like drinking too much and you're still in the States at this stage. Like, are you still in Florida at that stage? At that stage, we were in uh, Kentucky. Okay. We were in Kentucky. So my, my ex-husband was in the army yeah. and he was deployed several times um, throughout all of this, but also um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with army life, but if anyone is listening and they're an army wife, then they will know um, that you don't tend to stay put. You you move every couple years. You know you're always getting stationed in a new place, especially because um, my ex-husband was very smart and he was always you know building new skills and you know going airborne and becoming an engineer. And because of this, it always required us to move every time he took on a new skill set with the military um, in advancement, we would move. <laughs> so, so we moved a lot. And that probably didn't help either because that sense of safety, that safety blanket that we all need in our lives, usually that comes from continuity. That comes from knowing where my home is and routines. And my routines were being really tossed in the air a lot. And even as adults, we still require that sense of familiarity yeah. um, in order to be able to make the best decisions and to be able to be the most mindful. So, so it was, it was definitely a combination of things that kind of led to such challenges. Um, but at the time we were in Kentucky that, um, that this all happened, that he came home from a deployment and the following morning, that night I could tell things were off. Yeah. yeah. As soon as I saw him, as soon as I, saw him I knew something had ended. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was our marriage, but I knew something was over. And the following morning, he, he told me, he told me everything that he had met somebody else. Um, she was in the army and he was, you know, leaving me for her. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that was hard. That was really hard. And I, up until that point, I, I didn't become alcohol dependent until maybe a few months later. So to be clear, I grew up in a very religious home. You know, we, we basically Bible belt, you know, uh, what are they called? Fundamentalists. There you go. Um, you know, very, um, yeah, Southern Baptist, um, type of home, you know, and my dad was a preacher. So, um, so I didn't drink much. That's my point. My point is I had never learned, um, the wonderful, wonderful gift of avoidance <laughs> that you can get from, you know, from alcohol and, and from drugs and, and from all of those different addictions because addiction provides us with avoidance, right? That's what usually stems them. And, um, I hadn't learned that yet. So it was still a while before the alcohol dependency kicked in. That wasn't until, that was a journey in and of itself, to be honest, because I bounced around a little bit. As soon as I found out everything from my husband, um, I went straight to my brothers who lived about an hour away. I went to them for a while. And I felt like, I remember him saying to me one of the nights, I was only there for two weeks. And one of the nights he was like, we're going to hold your hand through this. Um, and you guys are going to get back together. And just the way that it was said, and I knew that he didn't want to get back together with me. This wasn't my choice, but it was kind of being, and I, I don't think it was intentional, but it was being presented as like, they're there, Steph, we got you. You're going to be fine. Um, 
And I'm like, I don't think you guys understand. My life is over. Like you know, everything that I know is over, has ended. Yeah. And my family didn't seem to really understand it. Or maybe it was just too big for them to understand. I'm not sure. But I felt more isolated than ever at that point. Yes. And that's hard. Doing you staying at your brother's house. Like, because I'm guessing your, your house, like the army house, like the army accommodation goes with your husband. Like, so if he leaves you, so does your home. And so yeah. you're sort of, you're really out in the world now. So do you have a job? Like, uh, how do you start drinking? Is it the kind of thing where you're like, I'm just going to pop into this bar or I'm just going to have a second glass of wine at dinner? Or how did that start? Yeah. So like I said, that in and of itself is quite the story. Um, so no, I didn't have a job. I, I had left my job. And the reason though, I didn't leave it because of, um, you know, my ex-husband saying all of this. I, I didn't leave it for that. I actually left it because this was his final deployment and his contract with the army was about to end and our lives were about to finally begin. Um, the way that I saw it was life after the army was what we were both aiming towards. We didn't want, I didn't want to be an army wife. That wasn't where I felt. And and it wasn't where he felt the most comfortable either. He knew that this is just a path into something bigger and better for both of us. It gave him an education. It gave him skills. It gave us a, a down payment on a house. Um, so for us, that was just a stepping stone and we had finally reached the other side of the lake. Um, and so I was excited to, to give up my job, to meet him in Kentucky where he came um, back from Kuwait. Um, so, so when I say that I lost everything, I lost my future. I lost that foundation that we had been building for 10 years together. I lost everything. Um, so he and I went to counseling for a little while. And this was my second dose of really terrible counseling. (laughs) And I'll never forget. I I remember um, our counselor one day at the end of our session saying, um, I'm going to go read up a little bit. And then during our next session, I'll have some ideas for you. Um, shouldn't you have already read that? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, uh, so this is why, this is why a lot of people have really bad experiences with therapy and counseling. It makes them much less likely to return. Um, and that's just the truth of it. You know, that was hard. So, so I had received really, really poor um, support, not only from my family, who I think were really struggling to understand and process what was happening, but then in addition to that, the professionals, the professionals couldn't even help me. So, uh, so I hit the road and I ended up going over to my sisters who lived several states away. So I drove one straight drive, whoop, a 16 hour drive, um, over to my sisters. And I thought, this is it. This is where I'm going to find safety. This is where I'm going to find security. This will be my home away from home until I just catch my footing and figure out what that next step is. Because right now I, I couldn't see one step ahead of me. I just couldn't. And I think that a lot of people, when they're experiencing this level of stress, this level of pain, you, you become blinded. You know, you're, you're not able to see anything really clearly. You just live in this dreamlike reality. And, and that's how it was for me. So when I got over there to my sisters, um, thinking that this would be, um, I guess maybe that raft, you know, that life raft that I could just jump into and feel safe and pull to shore. Um, it was, it was not that it ended up being, um, uh, quite hard actually. Um, mostly because of myself, um, you know, when we're hurt, we hurt others. You say dumb things, you burn bridges and, and, but also, also a combination of they were not in a place to support someone else either. And I think that I I actually was talking about this not long ago, um, in another interview about toxic relationships and how we really, really encourage people to put space between ourselves and toxic people. We go, you know, cut those people out of your lives. But here's the thing. I was that toxic person for years. I was that toxic person. And you know what? Everyone cut off that relationship with me. I lost family members who to this day won't let me in their house. To this day, 
I lost all my friends, all my friends. I lost my future. People that are toxic, they need us. <laughs> they need grace. And yes, there are going to be, absolutely there are times when we have to find boundaries and we have to secure those boundaries and follow through those boundaries in order to take care of ourselves and protect ourselves and our families. No doubt about it. But anyone who has the strength to practice grace to those people who are genuinely suffering, who don't even know that they've experienced trauma, most of the time they don't know that their brain is actually processing something that it is not designed for. It, you, are, you are going through things that your brain is not equipped to deal with which is why it's not, it's not dealing with it. It's avoiding it. It's manipulating it. It's doing anything and everything it can to cope, to survive. Most toxic people are radical survivalists <laughs> who, who are going through their own apocalypse. And when we, when we reinforce the message of, well, just cut them off, then unfortunately, a lot of those people stay in the mud and they're never able to find that their way out because they're alone. So anyway, that story is kind of going <laughs> on its own. It's like this own little story of its own. Sorry about that. But um, I just wanted to emphasize that because I was the toxic friend for a long time. And I know what it's like to be the toxic friend, which is why for me, when it comes to cutting off friendships and cutting off relationships, it's pretty hard to do. <laughs> you know, once you're with me, you're with me for life. <laughs> like, you know, uh, just because I've, I've learned from my own experiences of feeling isolated from the world. And I, and I don't want other people to feel that. So I practice grace daily with myself and daily with other people as much as I can. Because I know what it's like to have family members who, who won't let go, who won't forget the mistakes that I made. 15 years ago, they will not let it go. And there's nothing that I can do other than continuing to show up and continuing to demonstrate that grace until someday, someday we can reconnect, you know, as family and as sisters. And that, that will be, that'll be worth it all in the end, I think. But, um, but getting back to your question, I'm sorry, I did kind of go on a bit of a rant there, but, but getting back to your question about when alcohol came in, because a lot of people do struggle with this. And that was, as you can see, things kept adding up. You know, so first there was, you know, the pain of going through seeing that little girl lost and alone and the reality of at the end, she had no one, you know, and just coping with that myself was so hard because anyway, I'm not going to, I'm not going to repeat myself. I've already given enough information there, but, but first there was that couple years later, then there was divorce, which of course, my fault, right? Everything is my fault that I had that victim mentality, which is what we often do when we are experiencing those big doses of stress and that, that massive amount of pain that we're having a very hard time processing. So we go into that, that state of, oh, it's all my fault and I'm ashamed of myself. And that led me to making so many consecutive poor decisions, <laughs> so many mistakes. Um, Finally, I, I found myself back in Florida. Florida is where I'm originally from. It's where my parents live. It's where I went to high school. And I found myself back there. And when I started um, making new friendships and connecting with old high school friends, this is where alcohol started to take a toll. Like I said, I grew up very religious. I was never a drinker. But then, uh, you know, we would go out on the weekends and we would go to a club and we would have some drinks and it was just for fun. Now, for most people, that's fine. They can maintain a full-time job. They can maintain relationships and they can still go out and have fun. But for me, when we went out and had fun, that was the very first escape that I had experienced. And I couldn't let that go. Up until now, I had reached out for people and had been let down. I had been, you know, trying to grab that life raft and had been pushed back under the water by friends, family, circumstances. And I had that victim mentality. It's everybody else's fault. It's, you know, the, clearly there's nothing I can do to change my life, you know? Um, so alcohol was the answer. Alcohol was everything that those things had not been. It gave me an escape. I could forget for a while what pain was because you become really beautifully numb, you know, when you're intoxicated, you do. And so being able to leave my reality for a while 
that in probably, I would say in probably eight weeks, so that quickly, in probably eight weeks of time of being in Florida and just going out every once in a while, it became every night having a couple shots, different things every night, just so I could get to sleep because of the bliss of knowing I'd actually sleep at night. So it was a very self-reinforcing um, intoxication. And, and when it becomes every night, that's going to impact your ability to go to work, right? So at, up until now, I hadn't been working at all. I've been living off of, you know, our savings. I've been living off of money that, um, you know, that my ex-husband gave me out of guilt. Um, you know, so I had been financially okay and had managed to get my own apartment and all of these things. But now I needed to go back to work. And I had already established this pattern of drinking at night in order to fall asleep right? Which meant that I couldn't start work until about midday the next day. So I found a job working in early childhood education where I worked from like, I think it was like 12 to seven, something like that. Something that it allowed me again to continue this very, very poor pattern, this, this cycle that I got myself into of drinking. Um, and it, again, it just, uh, all of these things are kind of like tumbleweeds, all of these decisions just kept adding up and just taking me further and further and further into this abyss. <laughs> yeah. So I became alcohol dependent and I was like that for years. I was like that for a very, very long time and nothing actually changed until I came to Australia. And like, and that's another story in and of itself. So if you want to hear rock bottom, I haven't even hit it yet. <laughs> Yeah. Let's go there. Let's go there. Because I okay. did anyone call you out? Did anyone say, mate, you are drinking a lot? <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. People called me out. But going back to when we are in that blanket of shame that we are carrying, when people call you out, you don't, I did not, I can't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of people can relate to this. It's not seen as love when your friends do an intervention. That's not love. That's rejection. That's humiliation. That's, that's not love. That's not how I translated it. So, so yes, my friends absolutely did intervention after intervention. And guess what? I just burned all those bridges. I lost all those friendships. But my family, I don't think they knew what was going on. <laughs> they didn't even know how to talk to me anymore. You know, and this, this is why some of them still don't because they will, they will see me as that person who was so harmful. You know, they, they have a really hard time understanding that people do change and people do grow. And I feel like I am trying to prove that to the world still, you know, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about what I do, but it's also one of the reasons why I'm so vulnerable with what I do, because I think that there is still part of me that goes, I made a lot of mistakes and I've got to make up for lost time. And I don't think that that's the most healthy motivation. Definitely not. So it's, it's ongoing. It's daily and lifelong, you know, working on ourselves is always ongoing. Um, but anyway, sorry. Yes. People did call me out and that usually meant we weren't friends anymore. <laughs> Just being honest. Okay. So how did you end up in Australia? So you're in Florida, you're, basically an alcohol dependent childcare worker. I mean, there'd be something yeah. you find that funny because they're like, well, dealing with children. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but okay. So you, how did you get from Florida to Australia? Yeah. So coming to Australia was kind of, um, like the last reach, you know, like the last call for help. So I think that, and I think it's really important to emphasize going back to those toxic people in our lives a lot of the times they do reach out for help. We just don't know that they're reaching out for help. And they might not know that they're reaching out for help. I didn't realize that these were calls for help that I was doing. You know, alcohol dependency, that was a call for help. That was, that was avoidance, you know, like, how do I get out of this? How do I escape this? But instead, from an outside perspective, it was, man, she's a mess. She's making a lot of bad decisions. Rather than empathy and being like, I wonder why. Why is she a mess? What has she gone through? No one was asking the big questions. Um, so my, my final reach for help and, uh, was pretty much when I started engaging in self-harm. And yeah, so that's what led me to being like, all right, I just want to survive. I just want to live. 
And that was when I decided to come to Australia. But, um, but the story of that is when I had, when I had been staying in Virginia, which I hadn't really gone into too much, but when I was staying there, that was the first time that I started to really just um, fantasize about self-harm and what it would be like to, to be free and for it to all be over. Um, but every time that I fantasized about it and every time that I came close to making a decision, there was always something in the back of my mind like, well, what if my roommate finds me? That'll be really hard on her. Um, or, you know, what if this person gets in trouble because of what I've done? I can't do that to them. So I still had some sense of reality, right? I was still in touch with reality, you know, several, maybe, um, probably a few months to a year before the final event, I still had some touch to reality. But after being, after getting drawn into this alcohol dependency, your reality starts to fade over time. It becomes number and number. And that's what I was finding for myself was I was becoming further and further distanced from reality. I was engaging a lot of dissociative patterns and behaviors. And finally, it got to the point, and I'll never forget, a good friend of mine said that um, obviously he had no idea the implications that it made on my life. But one of the things that he had said was that, um, that death was so peaceful, that death was like sleeping, and you would never suffer again. And I remember... As soon as he said it, I made up my mind. He had no idea. So I'm definitely not going to say his name. <laughs> he had no idea the impact that those words had made on me. And I remember being like, that's it. This is the answer. I had been toying with it before, but now I know. And that's because all of those lifelines had fallen short. And so anyway, so I made up my mind. I had made up my mind and I knew how I was going to do it too, how to keep other people out of it. You know, I was going to get on the highway. I was going to go as fast as I could. And then as soon as I found a big sturdy tree, I just drive straight into it, you know, quick to the point, does the job. Nobody else is hurt. And that's the kind of mentality that when you're desperate and when your lifelines have been cut off, when you're only, you know, your only support is gone. You're no longer thinking clearly. It's, you know what I mean? Like, like we get so angry at people for thinking this way, but there's a reason, there's a reason that they think this way, you know, like, uh, so anyway, um, so I made up my mind, I'd made my decision and I was out there on the highway and I was picking up speed and I felt peace. I felt the closest thing I can think of, even though it's not, probably accurate. The closest thing I can think of to describe it was joy. I felt joy. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't angry at my ex-husband and cursing his name. I wasn't crying because I felt rejected by the people that I love the most. None of that. It just felt like finally I'm making a good decision. That's how it felt. That makes me emotional because I hurt for her, you know? I hurt for who I was then because if this was anybody else, I'd be crying my eyes out thinking about her, but because it's me, I can just dismiss it so easily. But that was where I was at. And as I was speeding and as I was gaining all of this speed and I was ready, there was a siren behind me and I was pulled over by a police officer. <laughs> this angel pulled me over and saved my life. It was, she was incredible and so calm, you know, wrote me a ticket, didn't ask a lot of questions, had no idea, no concept of what she had just interrupted. And then when she was about to leave, Something inside of me was like, life raft, life raft. <laughs> and I was like, please, what do I do? And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, my husband has left me. I've lost all of my friends. Everyone hates me. I feel so alone. And she was like, you're healing. You know, you're grieving. You need time. Time is all that heals. Time is the only thing that can heal you. And when she said that, 
she, you know, a couple minutes later drove off. I don't think she'll ever know what she did that day. I don't think she'll ever know. And if I could just, if I knew who she was, if I could reach out to her today and say, this is what, this is the impact that you made on my life and the other people's lives around me, I would if I could, but I have no clue who she is. And I, that's a big regret that I have. But when she told me that time was what I needed, for the very first time, I showed myself grace. And I was able to go, hang on a second. That's okay. You can do time. We got time. I got plenty of time. Time doesn't cost anything. You can do time. And, and there was hope. And there was that life raft finally, but it was me. I was the life raft. Do you see what I mean? Like, like I was the one who could make the changes. Nobody else can save you. Only you. And that's what I had to finally figure out. So I knew then and there that if I stayed where I was in the patterns that I had created, the alcohol dependency, the part-time job, you know, the, the family who didn't know what to say to me, the friends who had abandoned me, understandably, I'm definitely not blaming anyone in this. I knew that if I stayed, things wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to heal. I wouldn't be able to move on because I'd be reliving all of these cycles and breaking patterns is very, very hard. And sometimes we need to take a leap before we can take little steps. So for me, it was taking that leap. So I, two months later, I was on a plane to Australia. (laughs) I just knew that I had to get across the world. I had to get away. And I did. And that absolutely changed my entire life. I'm still here. I've been here for 11 years and I have my own business here. I have an incredible husband. I have wonderful in-laws. I have a beautiful relationship with most of my family members, um, my close friends. I, I have people who love me in my life and, and I feel like I'm able to share these stories finally and be able to benefit others. And, but the biggest thing is that I'm finally doing the work that I think I was meant to do. And that's fostering that that's fostering kids who are in vulnerable situations. And, and hopefully I can, you know, one child at a time, make a difference, I guess. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like everything was leading up to that. You know, and do you feel like that? Like all that Mm. suffering, all that pain, all that terrible things. Like would you have been capable of what you do now had you not been through that? I don't know. I don't know. I I think I might never know the answer fully to that question because I want to be completely honest. I, I just don't know. I like to think that I would be. I like to think that I would still be you know, passionate about working with kids and families and all of that. But, but I don't know, there's a good chance that I'd still be working in emergency medicine right now. There's a chance that I would never have gone down this path. And there's some questions we will never be able to answer, but I'm grateful. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay. So in terms of the kids you help now, like, do you, see those patterns in them? Do you, do you recognize something in them that you yourself has experienced or is, or are they too young for that? Like they, they're not there yet. Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, so yes, I absolutely do because these patterns didn't start in my twenties. I know that a lot of the trauma, traumatic events that ignited the path that I went on. Yes, those happened in my twenties, but, but the truth is, is the the patterns in my brain started in my childhood. You know, most of the stuff, most of the stuff that we're working through as adults is directly related to our, our childhood and the way that we were raised. So, um, so I definitely see some of the patterns in these kids who there's three key things that we focus on with all of my clients. And this is true with the kids in my house as well. And my husband and I are very intentional. And these are three gaps that I had that I am to this day working on because like I said before, it's daily work and it's lifelong work. (laughs) So it's ongoing, you know, working on ourselves. That's a lot of work. It's a lot to take on. Um, But there's three key things that, that we look for. And there's these three things that I can see in all the kids that come into our home. We have different kids in here every couple months, different stories, different backgrounds, different ages, but we always see the same thing. They have that struggle in their identity. 
in figuring out who am I? What are my core values? And because of that, you can tell immediately when children struggle with this question because they're very rigid. They have a hard time adapting to other people. They have a hard time being flexible when things are out of routine. Um, and you'll, you'll see that immediately in their behavior. Children who demonstrate very anxious behaviors, often in very non-functional ways, like things that they usually love, they're avoiding now. Um, a lot of the times that actually just comes down to the very, very basic principles of who am I? What is my significance? What is my identity, right? And that's what leads them to developing those core values, which give them the tools to be more flexible and to be more adaptive, even during challenges. Basically, a growth mindset is what that leads to, and resilient thinking, which is what we want to see, right? So that's the first big thing. Then the second big thing was is really helping kids navigate their autonomy, their independence, being able to self-regulate, being able to make good decisions, have good judgment. And a lot of this comes from their intrinsic motivation. So one of the patterns that we see a lot with children during, the, during these early years is having a very difficult time making good decisions. And we struggle to understand why. So rather than understanding how their brain works, we tend to introduce consequences. We go, well, if you make a poor decision, I'm going to punish you. If you make a poor decision, I'm going to put you in timeout. If you make a poor decision, I'm going to lecture you as to why you need to think like me. Okay. And it's not giving children the opportunity to actually learn how to regulate. So we actually have to step into their shoes and understand, okay, how does my child process the situations that they're in and now make decisions? So that's one of the big things that we look at as well. And then finally, the the third and final thing that I look at with all of the kids who come through our door, but also all of the families that I work with, because this is true with any age, any developmental level, right? This is true of all of us, you know, whether there's childhood trauma or not, this is not restricted to foster kids. This is true for all of us. The third final thing is, is what is their capability? What are their strengths? Um, what are they capable of? Where can they, where can they learn to get better at something. And I think that when you combine being able to get better at something with the combination of it's okay to be uncomfortable because I don't lose myself, right? So their identity combined with capability, that is when you get some pretty powerful changes in someone's behavior. That's when you start to see someone who shows up for themselves, who shows grace to themselves and to others. And you can make better decisions. This is where we start to see confidence, connection, uh, you know, cooperation, which are, which are the things that we all, you know, aim for in our families. So, yeah. Okay. So can you answer those questions for yourself now? You said all of us need these things. Like, so through this process, can you now answer all of those questions for yourself? Yes. That's oh, such a powerful question. You're going to cry again. <laughs> that's such a powerful question. And that's exactly it. So this is the journey that I have to go on. And I, unfortunately, I didn't go on it until my mid twenties, early twenties. Right. So the idea of helping kids go through it when they're more flexible and they're more resilient and they're able to learn so much faster than we are, um, and save themselves from all of those difficult, you know, patterns that it might lead to. So yes, it was much later in life that I went through those processes where I figured out, all right, what are my core values? Because that led me to what are my boundaries? And when we know what our boundaries are, boundaries are a beautiful thing. Boundaries have nothing to do with other people. <laughs> boundaries are 100% about us. What takes care of us? What do we need in order to thrive, in order to be compassionate for others, in order to give? Boundaries are what that is. And, and I did not know what my own boundaries were because I didn't even know who I was. My, my identity was just non-existent. I had no interest in figuring out who she was and talking to her and having conversations with her. Whereas now that's how I spend most of my time. I am constantly checking in with how I'm doing. I'm constantly practicing gratitude. I am constantly practicing positive self-talk. And while these things sound really airy-fairy to a lot of people, and I think the reason why is because they're so simple, we can all do them. Therefore, they can't have that much of an impact. But the research is in. We know now that these things can change the course of your life. It's incredible. And those are the things that I have come to learn. So 
definitely tuned into my own identity and what my strengths are, what my core values are, definitely tuned in to um, my role and the purpose that I want to serve, not only in my relationship, my interpersonal relationships, my intimate relationships, but also with the world, the relationship that I want to leave behind, the legacy that I want to leave behind has become so clear. And then finally, with capability, I am constantly stretching out of my comfort zone into that learning zone. And, and while it's hard every time, even, even this conversation is hard, right? Because this is a level of vulnerability that so many people would avoid. It's, oh, it's pretty vulnerable putting yourself out there like this. But I continue to push my boundaries, to push my own limits, to really understand you know, how much there is to gain from those discomforts and taking those types of risks. And that's exactly what I want for these kids. And that's exactly what I want for these families that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. Well, I have one last question and it's a sad question. What was that little girl's name? I don't know. Right, so you never found out her name. I'm sure we did at some point. I'm sure we did. But the truth is, this is something I've talked very deeply about with my psychologist. And I was recently um, told that I had the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which I shared earlier. And because of that, I have a lot of gaps in my memory. And I actually have a lot of blacked out spaces of time. And one of, one of the great losses has been, I don't remember much detail. I don't remember her name. I don't remember her mom's name. Yeah, unfortunately, that's something that I would like to know. Okay, but you remember the incident in detail. Yeah. Oh, yes, that took a long time. That took a long time to dig up because remember earlier how I said that we don't know we're experiencing trauma when we're experiencing trauma? <laughs> very true for a lot of people. Some people are more in tuned and they know they have that self-awareness so they're able to know, but not a lot of us. A lot of us don't know that it's trauma. And one of the ways that I pinpointed the event was not because at the time I knew, it was because later, a decade later, and a lot of sessions, we actually dug all of this up. And we were like, all right, let's go back to the point where this all kind of you know, what was the crescendo, I guess, you know, where, where was that peak? And that was what we found. And there was a lot of blackness around it. There was a lot of mystery around it. It took a lot of time to get very specific with the details. Now I remember it very clearly, but I have to be completely open. That's because I've done the work. It takes work to dig this stuff up. But one of the things that I do not remember is her name. And I do wish that I did. That is a sad question. It is a sad question, but I think we should all thank her, really. I mean, this little girl who (sighs) paid this ultimate price, but she was a gift to you in the sense that you wouldn't be you without her. And all those kids, all those kids that you've helped, all those families that you've helped, that wouldn't have happened without her. So she was the catalyst for this ultimate journey of yours and also this incredible good that you're putting into the world and so to her I just want to say thank you to you I want to say thank you because you know a lot of people don't turn that shit into gold um because it's so ugly and so hard but it seems to me like you've taken this terrible terrible thing and turn it into something that's not just light for you, but that is light for a lot of people. And so thank you. (laughs) Thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, There's so many parts of that story that I think a lot of people like will resonate with. And um, yeah, I just wish you the best. Like, so how can people get in touch with you? How can, how, if people need help with this stuff, how can they find you? Well, um, thank you, Emma. Um, Try not to cry again so I can answer your question. Um, But thank you so much for allowing me the platform to to share this. Not everyone wants to hear the sticky stuff, the messy stuff. So it's, but it's normal, isn't it? We all have messy stuff. So thank you for for letting me do that. Um, Okay. 
Um, as far as working with me goes, I, uh, I would love, you know, to, to hear from anyone who feels like, all right, let's work together. Um, and please know that I, I provide conscious parenting programs for families. So I do not work specifically with children, you know, who have experienced early childhood trauma. That is just what I do in my personal life. That's my decision for my family is that we're going to support these vulnerable kids. Um, but what I do in my business is, is quite different. So I, I work with everyday families who are maybe feeling like, I just want to feel more connected to my kids. Parenting is so much harder than I thought it would be. I feel like I'm really dropping the ball a lot. Maybe I'm losing my temper a lot. Maybe I'm really reliant on reward charts and bribes and begging. And I just, I don't know how to get that cooperation up. Um, it can be just the everyday things that get in the way of us being able to fully show up and to enjoy the experience. I cherish every minute with the kids in our home. I, I try to cherish every minute with my husband. And that's one of the things that has come. That's the outcome of going through so much pain and loss is I just cherish everything. Every morning is gratitude journaling and the kids do it too. And, and you know, they love it. They, they look forward to it every morning and it's just, we're just so cheesy here <laughs> and it's wonderful. Um, so anyway, my point is that um, that I, I would love to you know support any family that feels like we just want to tune in to our kids, we want to tune in to our relationship with parenting, we want to tune in better to ourselves, um, and the way that we do that is through working in one-on-one -on -one sessions. I, I like doing deep dives with people to help them fully understand the decisions that they're making why this is so hard, why parenting is an uphill battle. Anyone who goes into parenting thinking this is going to be easy, this is going to be fun, it's just going to be rainbows and flowers. Yes, there are tons of rainbows and there are tons of flowers, but there's a lot of rain too and there's a lot of hard days too. And when we're not equipped for that, everything becomes a lot harder. So I think that having realistic expectations why are my kids so difficult? <laughs> Why is this so much harder to get my husband on board than I thought it would be? All of those types of questions I like to really help answer um, with my families to provide them with the knowledge they need in order to make changes. And that leads me to the final thing is, is we put together very clear plans, whether it's behavior solutions, emotional coaching, emotional intelligence, all of those different things that we talked about earlier, those three components that help children make better decisions in their life. We put a plan in place that is so simple, so engaging, so fun, because we keep it child-centered. Everything that we do is child-led, which means that it's designed around their motivation. So you don't have to worry about trying to drag them into it and convincing them to do it and making these changes. Not at all. We use their motivation first and foremost. So it's a very fun, engaging uh, opportunity to connect with your kids more than anything. So if you wanted to work with me, the best place to start would be just to grab a free phone call, jump on the phone, talk a little bit about what your struggles are and whether or not my conscious parenting programs are the right fit for you. Um, and we can kind of bounce some ideas off of each other and go from there. Hey, good. Well, I, think, I, I feel like I could use your help, um, but I also think that I know so many people who could use your help as well. So, so thank you so much, Steph. I so appreciate your time today and um, just like such a corny thing to say, but keep up the good work. <laughs> oh, thank you, Emma. We'll just be cheesy together today. <laughs> you've been listening to that shit show if you like what you've heard head to the facebook page or the website for more information it's thatshitshowpodcast.com you'll find show notes and more episodes to download thanks so much for joining me